Now, last Lord's Day morning, we commenced a series of talks on First Peter. And should I say that last Sunday evening, we started a series of talks on Bible kings, and we considered a king who was robbed at the beginning of the year. Now, this evening, we were looking at a king who couldn't mind his own business. A king who couldn't mind his own business. So we look forward to seeing you at the evening service. Now, this morning, as we continue our studies in the First Peter, we are going to look at the elect of God or the people of God. And we're going to look at four very simple thoughts about the elect of God, about the people of God. We are going to consider, first of all, this truth. Their future is not in doubt, verses 3 to 5. Then, verses 6 to 9, their faith is under trial. And then, verses 14 to 21, their father has to be obeyed. And then verse 22, their friendship must be genuine. And those are the four simple truths that we are going to consider, I trust with benefit and profit, about the elect of God or the people of God. Now Peter introduces this chapter by first of all giving the names and addresses of the people to whom he has written this letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers. Ah, you see, Peter is lightning. The people of God, the pilgrims. This world is not their home, they're just a passing through. They're not laying foundations upon earth. They're laying up treasures in heaven. And so he says, you're strangers to this old world and in this old world. He says, you're pilgrims passing through. And he says, you're scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are the places you have had to go to because of persecution. Maybe because of your business. Maybe because of your families. But that's where you're found at this point in time. But these people, wherever they were found in this life, their home was in heaven. And wherever you and I live in this life, in the final analysis, doesn't matter. As long as we can say, our home is in heaven, our home is not here. Because we have turned our back upon the world to follow Jesus 
who will take us to heaven and a home. And then he speaks about the work of the Trinity in their salvation. For he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Here is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, distinct persons, Within the Godhead, one God, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and every one of them had a part in the believer's salvation. The Father thought about us in eternity, about our need of salvation. The Christ of God loved us so much that he brought salvation to us by dying on the cross. And the Spirit of God wrought it within our hearts when we obeyed the gospel. The Father thought it. The Son brought it. And the Spirit wrought it. And when a person obeys the gospel of Christ, acknowledges his or her sinnership, and that Christ alone can save, at that moment, they're born into the family of God. They become the elect of God. They become the people of God. And I don't believe for one minute that it's in Scripture to say that there are people born to be saved and people born to be damned without any choice in the matter. Because the word of obedience is mentioned here, these people had to obey the gospel. Salvation is all of God. Man is no part in it other than putting his trust in the finished work of Christ. God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Why command all if all cannot? Come when invited. And so God the Father thought about salvation. The Christ of God came and he brought salvation. And when the sinner trusts Christ, the Spirit of God then works within the heart. And the sinner can say, he wrought salvation within me. The elect of God are those who have said, I will to the call of God. And that's when you and I enter into the experience of this wonderful truth of election the people of God. The moment we respond to Christ and God gives us all an invitation to come. 
And when they do come, verses 3 and 5 reminds us that their future is not in doubt. Heaven is their fatherland. Heaven is their home for eternity. And there are four things about this home mentioned in verse 4. Their home cannot be destroyed because it's incorruptible. Ah, you know, we live in days of redevelopment. When old houses are being knocked down. And I remember some years ago when my own mother and neighbors in the street where they live got word, you've got to move. Your wee houses are coming down. And I remember the day she was moving out. And I went down in the car and I got her into the car. And she took one last look at it and then said goodbye forever to that wee kitchen house in Sandy Road where she had raised a family of six. She had to say farewell to that wee home that was being destroyed. And down here we live in houses. And some of you maybe have been, as it were, relocated. And you sit some time and you look back to the wee home you left with all its memories. And somehow or other, the house you're in never seems the same as the one you left. But when it comes to heaven, the home of the redeemed, it'll never be destroyed or knocked down. It'll never be defiled. Because it's an undefiled home. And in homes on earth, Sin enters and defiles. And all the foul language that defiles the walls of the home. And all the unclean literature literature that litters the homes. The videos that are set forth in the homes. The conversations that go on in the home. They all defile the home. And the home. But Revelation 21, verse 27 tells us, not that the defilers shall ever enter in, this home will never be defiled. This home will never be dimmed, for it fades not away. And no matter what kind of house is built today, in a month or a year or two, they've got to get the decorators in. The wallpaper is beginning to fade or the paint's beginning to fade or the wood's beginning to go. And oh, the glory of the first day they stepped in is gone. But oh, the gold of heaven will never lose its glory. The pearls will never lose their luster. The precious stones will never cease to sparkle. The glory of heaven will never be dimmed. 
and the people of God will never be denied it because it's reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God unto salvation. You know, down here many people are denied houses. Oh, they get their name on the housing list. And then they hear, yes, you're going to get a house in that area. And then lo and behold, somebody else gets it. And many things are said, of course. And many conclusions are arrived at as to why somebody got the house and they didn't get it. But child of God, you'll never be denied heaven or you'll never be deprived of heaven. Do you know why? Because our hope for eternity is based upon the resurrection of our Lord and Jesus Christ. The empty tomb is the seal of our hope for eternity. Begotten us again onto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we are as sure as heaven of heaven just as sure as Christ sits upon the throne at the right hand of God. He'll never die. We'll never be deprived. Their future is not in doubt. Their faith is under trial, verses 6 to 9. For Peter says, although you're looking forward to heaven, listen, you've got to live down here. You've got to walk through this whole world. And you're going to meet with trials. And he tells them in verse 6. Now for a season of need be. Ye are in heaviness through manifold or many. Very temptations. Oh they were going through the mill. The old devil was after them at every opportunity. Trouble was coming at them from every corner. And if you read the book of Job chapter 1. And chapter 2, this is what you'll find about Job. That on one occasion a great wind came and smote the four corners of his house and it fell. Bad enough when it smites one corner or two or three, but when it hits the whole house, ah, it's different. And maybe there's a child of God going through a time of trial like these people, like Job. And one corner of the house was hit, as it were, but you said, I couldn't get any worse. And you turned to the other corner, and there was trouble there. I couldn't get any worse. You turned to the other corner, it was there. And the other corner, it's there. And no matter where you turn, there's trouble. And maybe at this moment, you're just enveloped in a cloud. And you wonder why God's allowing you to go through what you're going through. Remember this. The exhortation that Peter gave to these people is this. Keep your eyes on Christ, the one you love, the one who's coming back again. He won't let you down. 
and Peter is saying in all kindness to them, no matter how hard the way, don't let the Savior die. Don't go wander in the trials. For Jesus said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. What are you going through? A family problem? A health problem? An unemployment problem? A spiritual problem? And you're sitting in church and you're really Christ. Don't give in. Christ is with you. And the hymn writer put it, O Christian, yield not to the tempter. No matter what others may do, stand firm in the strength of the Master. Be loyal, be faithful and true. Each trial will make you the stronger. If you, in the name of the Lord, fight manfully under your leader, obeying the voice of his word. He'll not let you down in the trials. Don't let him down. And then thirdly, their father has to be obeyed. And in verses 14 to 21, the apostle Peter is saying to these people, God has called you to holiness. Verses 14 to 16. Don't fashion yourselves according to your former life. You have left those sins behind you. God expects holiness often from his people. And do you know what Peter says? A very practical thing. He says to these people, if you go back to your sins, if you don't be holy, if you're not separated from sin, you're denying the cross. For Peter tells these people how they were redeemed from their sins. It was by the precious blood of Christ. And he says to these people, look, if you are practicing sin, as God's people, you're denying the work of Christ. And as the children of God today, if ever there was a need for holiness, it's today. When standards are being lowered all around us, when truth is being bombarded from every side, Standards are slipping. And the people of God are slipping with them. Oh, I'd rather be an old-fashioned Christian and have the standards of God's Word than a newfangled one who has set aside the standard of God. Christian, older one in particular, do you still stand for the things you once stood for? Older Christian, do you have the same standards today as you once had? Young Christian, what's your standard of Christian living today? Is it contemporary Christianity 
or is it biblical Christianity? There's a difference. Don't be molded by the fashion of the world. Be conformed to the image of God's Son. And no Christian ever sinned with his eyes open unless he first of all closed his eyes to the cross. Children of God, if you're practicing sin, be careful. Child of God, if you're tempted to sin, remember this. Before you sin, you've got to look at the cross. And you've got to go past it before you sin. And if as a child of God you're sinning, you're denying the cross. Their father has to be obeyed. A call to holiness and then finally. Their friendship has to be genuine. Seeing you have purified your souls, in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Have a burning love in your heart for your fellow Christians. You see, love for our fellow Christians is not an option. It's an obligation. John 13, verses 34 and 35 a new commandment said, Jesus, I give unto you, that's his disciples, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if ye have loved one to another. Many things put people off. Things put people off being saved. But here's one thing that puts people off, perhaps more than any others at times. That is when they see Christians fighting among themselves. When they hear Christians criticizing each other unjustly. When they see Christians not talking to each other. when they see Christians going out deliberately to hurt the other Christians. And the unsaved people say they want us to be part of the family of God. And that's how they treat each other. I wouldn't want to be in a family like that. And many Christians feel at work because of this. Because in the workplace, they criticize their fellow believer unjustly. Oh, if the Christian is doing something wrong, that Christian deserves to be rebuked. But oh, when the Christians get in the wee huddle in the place of work and they point the finger at the faults of their fellow Christians for the unsafe to hear, and they haven't had the guts to go and speak to them face to face. And many a Christian is partisan in the place of work because of it. 
and many a Christian is powerless in the neighborhood because the neighbors know. Ah, that Christian has fallen out with another Christian in the church, and yet they say they love each other. And the testimony suffers in the neighborhood. And their testimony suffers in the church. And I wonder if someone sitting in church this morning and one part of the church and there's a Christian sitting in the other part of the church and you haven't talked for weeks, maybe months or even years. It's about testimony. And very often the Christian fails in the home. And the Christians gather around the table or in the living room or whatever. And the children are there. And they start criticizing their fellow Christians in front of the children. And the children are listening. And they're saying, I wonder what's wrong with daddy and mommy that they've fallen out with somebody. I wonder what's wrong in the church. If that's how they're talking at home. Are you losing out in your Christian testimony? Because of an unchristlike attitude to a fellow believer. This is not an option. We have got to love one another. We mightn't like their ways. We don't have to sit in their lap day after day. We don't have to sit in their houses day after day. We might like some of the things to do. And we might feel we've got to rebuke them for sin, but we've got to love them nevertheless. For by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have loved one for another. I don't know the condition of this church. I'm just new to it. But as I said at the reception last Saturday, a week back Saturday, there's one thing you'll find out about me if you find out nothing else. You'll find out that I'm honest. And if I preach Sunday by Sunday in this place, and there are certain things that may hurt some of you, it's because of being honest with your soul. I don't know the position of the church. I've just come to it. But I trust that no Christian in this church is failing in any of these areas that I have mentioned, the home, the church, the work of the neighborhood, because of lack of love to others, especially their fellow Christians. And if there are those, then I would say before the day is over, get the matter right and have a fervent love, the one for the other. Our closing hymn is hymn 508, 508, rich are the moments of blessing, Jesus my Savior bestows.
by the mist and the shadow. Sometimes my sky may be dim. Rich are the moments of blessing spent in communion with him. Sing this last verse and chorus as if you were singing for the last time, as if we were marching into heaven just now. So let's join and sing the last verse and chorus. Help us to love sinners for Christ's sake. Love them enough to win them for Christ. Help us to love our fellow believers. For by this shall all men know that we are the elect of God, the people of God. Part us with thy blessing for Christ's sake. Amen.